I have a couple of short uh, opening stories about obedience. We're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, and we certainly, when we do, talk about grace, but we can't help but talk about it without talking about obedience as well. So certainly Abraham was obedient. Uh, John K Kenneth Galbraith, I hadn't heard of this guy, I probably should have, but he was a uh, very well-known economist. I probably would have not have agreed with him too much because he was a Keynesian economist who believes in big government and government spending, but that's beside the point. That doesn't have anything to do with this story. But he worked with, for a lot of presidents since he was a fairly well-known economist back a few years back. Well, he told a story that, to illustrate the devotion of the family housekeeper. Her name was Emily Gloria Wilson, and it went like this. It had been a long, wearying day, and I asked Emily to hold all telephone calls while I had a nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone rang, and Lyndon Johnson was calling from the White House. Get me Ken Galbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson. He's sleeping, Mr. President. He said not to disturb him. Well, wake him up. I want to talk to him. No, Mr. President. I work for him, not you. <laughs> he says, when I call the president... <laughs> He says, when I call the president back later, he could scarcely control his pleasure. Tell that woman I want her here in the White House. <laughs> that's, uh, don't you know who I am kind of thing. Well, sorry, that's one. And then uh, another story that someone told, and this was kind of in the, uh, in the, uh, the setting was, you know, as parents, sometimes it's really difficult in dealing with young children making sure that we teach them to obey and not be too harsh, but not be too lenient. And this was a story about the mother who wanted to have the last word, but couldn't handle the hassle that resulted whenever she said no to her young son. So after an especially trying day, she finally flung up her hands and shouted, all right, Billy, do whatever you want. Now let me see you disobey that. I thought that was pretty good. Kind of a, a, a couple of examples of obedience, uh, sort of the two different ends of obedience, that unquestioning obedience in the face of whatever, which we will see, of course, when we look at Abraham, for the most part. And uh, then on the other, the other end, of course, is the lack of obedience. But uh, uh, So that's what we will, uh, as we continue to look into the Abrahamic covenant, we will, we will do that. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, I'd like to just uh, pray now and thank you for um, being able to gather with like-minded believers. I am still very grateful that we can gather in this country, at least for now, without fear of, of uh, reprisal or attack or arrest or any of those things. Uh, so we're very grateful for that. Grateful that we can gather together, as I said, with like-minded believers to seek your face. And so just pray for your Holy Spirit to direct us. Um, I, as always, I pray for you to give us the Holy Spirit to, so that we can get knowledge and understanding and wisdom of the things of God so that we might know you better. We just pray that. Okay, what I, what I, I started last time, a couple weeks ago, talking about the Abrahamic Covenant. And what I plan to do, kind of the sort of the outline, as we started last time, was to at, fir at first look through the scriptures where God speaks directly to Abraham about the covenant. We started last time, and we'll continue that this time. And then I want to discuss the 
critical question, is, the, is this covenant a conditional covenant or is it an unconditional covenant? We'll, I want to deal with that. And then uh, look at what does the rest of the Old Testament say about the Abrahamic covenant? Try to look through at all the verses. Well, and we're not going to look at every single verse that mentions Abraham, but uh, look through what does the rest of the Old Testament say about Abraham. And then, of course, move into the New Testament and uh, what does the New Testament talk about the Abrahamic covenant because that's obviously very important because we see the, the, the span of the Abrahamic covenant from when it was given um, forever. And so we want to do that. And then we'll look at conclusions after that. So that's kind of the plan. And where we are is kind of in the middle of the first step is where we're looking at the verses in the scripture where God speaks to Abraham directly about the covenant. We, last time we went through... Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and we've called that the promise. That's when the promise was originally given to Abraham. And we, Abraham was called away from his country, his relatives, his father's house, and the promise was not given to him until he did. God told him to leave and go to some place where I'm going to tell you, and he did, and he gave him the promise. Um, we have talked about the threefold nature of the promise. Some say he had a promise of land, seed and blessing. I, I thought a better way to put that that I discovered was there's really three parts of the promise, national, personal, and universal. The national part is Abraham is going to become a great nation. God called him away from his own land because God was going to make him the father of a nation that would be distinct from all other nations. So there was a national part of the promise. There was a personal part of the promise. God blessed Abraham personally with much livestock, victory in battle, and with many sons. In Genesis 24.1, right before uh, Abraham died, it says, now, well, a little while before he died, it says, now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And then the universal part of the promise is that God promised to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. So we will continue to talk about that. And uh, we, in the course of that, we have seen the instances of Abraham's immediate obedience, like the housekeeper mentioned in the opening story, Abraham's immediate obedience when God told him to do some very difficult things, and we'll talk about some more of those today. Um, before, both before and after the giving of the promise, Abraham obeyed. Um, in Genesis 13, verses 14 to 17, we talked about the promise being expanded, and we noted that the promise just was not really expanded until Abram had left his family. He, that was the point at which he separated from Lot. And, uh, and so he finally basically sort of completely did what God had told him to do in terms of leaving his family and his land and his father's house. And in Genesis chapter 15, we talked about the, that was the point at which the, where the covenant was made, excuse me, where God had actually uh, used the word covenant in chapter 15 and made the covenant with Abraham. And we talked about the ceremony of the, uh, the um, uh, what a, Mine calls it a smoking, they call it different verses call it different thing. Mine calls it a smoking oven and a flaming torch that passed between the divided pieces of the animals, the, the ceremony to, to seal the covenant. And, and uh, we talked about how it shows God put Abraham to sleep. So Abraham didn't pass through, the, through those animals as was done in the past when people were making a, a covenant among equals. A bilateral covenant where both sides um, had, had to keep promises in order for the covenant to remain in force. Talked about that. 
And then we were beginning to look into Genesis chapter 17, and we'll get, go back there today looking into the, where the covenant is, re, is renewed. And here, the first place where stipulations are added to the covenant, where God speaks about some requirements that he is putting on his people that are going to be under the covenant. We noted that in Genesis 15, when God made the covenant with Abraham, he was less than 86 years old because uh, Ishmael had not been born yet. And now in Genesis 17, uh, Abram is, well, I say Abraham. His name will be changed here in just a few verses, and then we can start calling him Abraham. Uh, uh, he is now 99 years old. So it has been 13 to 14 years where the scripture does not record God speaking to him about the covenant. So he's made the covenant with him and then, um, and there is a lot of speculation as to why that is. Let's suffice to say that God has allowed this time to pass to remove all doubt about whether there was any physical chance for Abram and Sarai to have children. Uh, if, if they were still in, if Sarai, who would have been in her 70s, in Genesis 15, if by chance she was still in childbearing years, she had been barren all that time. But by this time, uh, and the scripture says elsewhere, like in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about how basically looking at their bodies uh, from a reproductive point of view as if they were dead. And so God has used this time to, uh, at, among other reasons perhaps, but to remove all doubt and uh, in Romans 4, 18 and 19, it says, uh, In hope against hope, he, which is Abraham, believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So the, the beginning of the covenant of, of descendants was not fulfilled until... Um, Isaac was born, and at that time, Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah was 90. Okay, and in this, these verses here, uh, God changes both Abram and Sarai's names. Uh, Abram's, Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude, so that's really uh, illustrative of the covenant that God has made with Abram. As best I could find, both of Sarah's names meant princess, so I'm not sure what the name change did exactly, but uh, certainly the illustration of Abram going from exalted father to the father of a multitude speaks of the promise that God had made to, to uh, Abraham. Um, and uh, let's, so let's read some of the verses here in 17. I'll try to quickly, I won't read the whole thing, but... Uh, now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations." And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. 
and I will be their God. Okay, so uh, he, he begins, now there is a little inkling of some of the stipulations that God is going to be placing on the people under his covenant as we look at verse 1, where he says, walk before me and be blameless. But then the verses in between there and where I stopped in verse 8, uh, it talks about God and the promises that he is making to uh, Abraham and his descendants. And then when we get to verses 9 through 14, I won't have to read them all here, but this is where the stipulation of the covenant of circumcision is given, where everyone who is, uh, every male who is under the covenant, and this is male of either Abraham's descendants or he talks about any uh, servants or slaves that are bought or brought into the house, any male servants need to be circumcised. Um, and you've probably heard this, this is a complete aside, but the question is sometimes asked, why is circumcision to be done on the eighth day? The obvious answer, because God said so. That's the first answer. Um, but, but it's interesting to, uh, to discuss what science has figured out, finally, as the years have gone by. And uh, they say on the eighth day, the amount of vitamin K and prothrombin, uh, a clotting factor in, in, present in, in the body, is actually elevated above 100% of normal. And it is the only day in the male's life when this will be the case under normal conditions. If surgery is to be performed, day eight is the perfect day to do it. Imagine that. God said it, and it's the perfect day to do it. So that's, um, that's com completely an aside. But vitamin K and prothrombin levels are at their peak on that day. Um, of course, nobody circumcises young male babies on the eighth day anymore because um, that's not, just not convenient. But uh, anyway. Okay, we're going to talk about these stipulations that God put on the covenant a little bit later when we kind of address the question about is this covenant a conditional covenant or is it an unconditional covenant? So for right now, suffice to say that uh, God has placed these stipulations on the covenant and uh, then he goes on in chapter 17 to um, tell, say that he's going to bless Sarah and give her a son and he, and this is where he, um, excuse me, sorry, sorry, um, got, got a little bit off, off track. Okay, this is where he promises Sarah that they, that they will have a son, and he's going to establish the uh, covenant with that son, names the son Isaac in verse 19. It's the first mention of Isaac, of course, in the Bible, where he says the, what the name of, of him will be. Uh, he also says, talks about how um, he was going to bless Ishmael, but that's not part of our study right, really at this point because that's not, not, it's not through Ishmael that the covenant was going to be fulfilled, but God was going to bless Ishmael also as a descendant of Abraham. Okay, so uh, that's where God speaks to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 17. Then in Genesis 18, God visits Abraham and promises the birth of Isaac. This had to be fairly soon after what happened in Genesis 17. Uh, God, or Yahweh, comes with angels, uh, verse 1 and verse 13. It says, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Verse 13 says, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? So it seems pretty clear that God was one of the three men that showed up. Uh, the other two likely were attending angels, um, 
probably, but the three came and to, uh, to announce that in, in, in a year, basically in about a year, they were going to have this son. So the actual the birth of Isaac is finally going to be coming to fruition these many years after the promise was first made. Uh, God actually names the child Isaac, which means laughter. Uh, apparently a play on words because Sarah laughed, if you read in down in, uh, uh, what verse is it? In verse 12 of chapter 18, Sarah laughed about this because uh, even though the promise had been made, there um, Abraham and Sarah are looking at themselves and uh, you know they're, they're looking in the natural like there's no way that this could possibly happen. So um, Abraham was a man of faith and then I believe Sarah was too, but they're human. And so they're looking at the circumstances like we often do and seeing that it doesn't look like the circumstances are very amenable to having uh, uh, descendants as numerous as the sands of the seashore and stuff like that. So uh, it, it, of course God is, God is the one doing it, so we know, well, we have the benefit of the rest of the story at this point when we're reading it, but uh, uh, Abraham is here and, and having to deal with this in faith. If you look ahead to, uh, we're not going to read all of chapter 18, but if you look ahead to uh, verses 18 and 19, it's right before the incident where, he, where God speaks to Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah. And... Uh, he says in 18, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So surely, God is speaking again. He's made the promise, and he states that surely this will come to pass. He says, for I, um, for I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So it, it, God speaks that surely this is going to come to pass and then goes on to, to sort of give an implication that this uh, is going to be dependent on the obedience of Abraham and his descendants. So it starts getting into the question again of is this covenant conditional or is it unconditional? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So uh, uh, that, we'll leave that for right now and talk about that uh, in a bit. Okay, then, then let's turn to Genesis chapter 22. Okay, this is the last time recorded in Scripture that God speaks directly to Abraham about the covenant. Of course, this is after Isaac is born. This is the very well-known story of God telling Abraham to go offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And there was a story told... Um, it, it, we admire the obedience of a dog. If a dog is trained and shows obedience to its master, we admire that. A man named Archibald Rutledge wrote that one day he met a man whose dog had just been killed in a forest fire. Heartbroken, the man explained to Rutledge how it happened. Because he worked out of doors, he often took his dog with him. That morning, he left the animal in a clearing and gave him a command to stay and watch his lunch bucket while he went into the forest. His faithful friend understood, for that's exactly what he did. Then a fire started in the woods, and soon the blaze spread to the spot where the dog had been left, but he didn't move. He stayed right where he was, in perfect obedience to his master's words. With tearful eyes, the dog owner said, I always had to be careful what I told him to do, because I knew he would do it. I'm sure all of your dogs do exactly that. 
I know mine do. No, I'm just kidding. That was a lie. I'm confessing my sin to you. I just lied to my dogs. Don't do that. But, um, but that's, the, that's the kind of obedience that Abraham showed. You think of a situation where the dog would sit there guarding his master's lunch and be burned to death. Well, here Abraham is told to take your son and go sacrifice him. Your son, your only son, your son through whom I'm going to keep the covenant promise. Now, um, I, I would imagine that Abraham and Sarah's faith has been bolstered quite a bit for when the birth of Isaac actually occurred. Uh, the promise was made, and, and uh, again, as I said, they were faithful people and had faith in God, but they were also human, and so they had some uh, doubts along the way. Uh, as you look back on those times when uh, Abraham had Sarah lie about being his sister so that he wouldn't get killed on her account. Well, that was after the time God had made the promise. And so, you know, it's easy for us to look and say, well, if you had enough faith to believe God's promise, you would never would have done that because you would have known that you weren't going to get killed. Well, yeah, that's easy for us to say. But uh, so, I mean, they weren't perfect people. They were sinners like you and I, uh, but although they were faithful people. But uh, to be told to take your son and sacrifice him, this son who's now finally been born to you in your old age and as an impossibility, and uh, it's quite an amazing story. And there, again, there's no indication that Abraham questioned or complained or anything. It says Abraham got up and got everything together and took off. Um, and so, you know, this story, we're not going to go through this whole story and talk about all the typology of Christ, uh, the only Son of God, the perfect Lamb provided as a sacrifice, uh, since we're looking at the covenant. But, I mean, clearly there's, there's, there's rich symbolism in this story and rich typology of Christ and, uh, and God providing the lamb. We're looking forward to that here. Um, <clears throat> our point is to look at the covenant. If you look at Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 to 18, it says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And there's uh, discussion about, even in these verses, what do these words seed mean? Some of the, the initial words seed in... Uh, 17, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Some of yours may say descendants. Um, that word is in the plural, speaking clearly of the, the many descendants that Abraham would have. But in verse 18, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. If we look in Galatians 3, chapter 16, it says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. So here in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, we have a looking forward to, the, again, the fulfilling of this covenant and the blessing of all the nations, or as it says earlier, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. We're looking forward to the seed of Abraham, coming down through Isaac and Jacob and Judah and that family until Christ comes and becomes the seed that, through whom the, the world shall be blessed. 
And then these verses, you can't help but read in these verses and, and see that God says, because you have done this thing, I will bless you. And because, um, verse 18, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed, obeyed my voice. And that word because, I mean, I, I, I thought at first maybe we just translated it to the word because in English. Um, and maybe it's really some other word, but you look it up and it pretty much means as a consequence of the, the word because. And so, again, starts bringing up the question that I've been alluding to all day long. Is this covenant a conditional covenant or is it an unconditional covenant? So let's look at that question right now. And are we out of time? Oh, no, we're not out of time. So I have to deal with that question. Why is this question even important? Uh, a quote from a man named Paul Benware, he said the following, probably the most significant issue related to the Abrahamic covenant has to do with its nature. Is it a conditional or bilateral covenant or an unconditional unilateral covenant? How one answers this question determines the framework of one's prophetic studies. Uh, or a quote that I said when I started this from somebody, it will determine the pitch of one's eschatological sales. I just love the way that sounds. Basically, it means it's going to, it's going to determine how you, how you start interpreting uh, scriptures about prophecy and scriptures about end times. Uh, you need to get this question settled in your mind because it will affect how you interpret scripture. Um, okay, so let's first of all look at evidence for conditioning for their, this English. It's my second language. Uh, my first language is babbling and my second language is English. Let's look at evidence of there being conditions on this covenant, that this covenant being a conditional covenant. God gave numerous commands to Abraham. In chapter 12, it begins with, go forth. God commanded Abram at that time to go forth and leave his land, as I said, and his family and his father's house and go someplace where I'm going to show you. And the promise was not given until he obeyed and left. And so there was a condition of Abram being obedient and going. Now the promise came after he did that. Uh, God said to him, arise and walk about the land in Genesis 13, 17, the land that God would give him. Uh, the expansion of the promise came after Abraham separated from Lot. We've already talked about that. That was part of the initial command, go and separate from your family. And then God told him to rise and walk around this land and look. And this is, is another command that he gave him. He told him in Genesis 15, uh, 9 and following, bring me a three-year-old, some number of different animals, the animals that Abraham cut in half and uh, placed as part of the covenant. So there was, uh, again... Uh, we see Abraham obeying all the time when he's commanded. Um, then he says, and we mentioned a little bit earlier at the beginning of Genesis chapter 17, God says, walk before me and be blameless. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, walk before me and you will be blameless. It could also be translated. Uh, we saw a command that he gave that we just talked about in Genesis chapter 22. Take now your son, your only son, and go take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. So God gave numerous commands to Abraham and uh, all involved with the covenant that Abraham obeyed. And then as we talked about and kind of glossed over and talked, we'll go back and talk about it just a minute here, the, the uh, circumcision 
is the stipulation that was placed on uh, Abraham and his descendants, male descendants, in chapter 17. Uh, God, this is 17.9. Uh, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And then he goes down in verse 14 and says, But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, I mean, that's as clear as you can get. There is a covenant, or excuse me, there is a stipulation on the covenant that the, all the males uh, be circumcised. And then we looked as we just read the, those verses in Genesis chapter 22, more evidence of the covenant being conditional um, in uh, Genesis 22 in 16 and 18, where God uses the word because you have obeyed, because you have not withheld your son from me, I will, and then goes on to repeat what he will do in terms of blessing him for the covenant. And then if you look ahead in Genesis 26, uh, a couple of chapters ahead, Genesis 26, 3, okay, is speaking to Isaac. So, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. This is Isaac. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. That's verse 2. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because, as a consequence of the fact that, Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So again, we see evidences in the scripture that, the, that uh, at least aspects of this covenant are conditional. Okay, now how about the evidence of the fact that this covenant is unconditional? Uh, they use the words bilateral, bi meaning two. The bilateral would be two people that are, uh, that are involved in a covenant, both of them having things that they have to fulfill in order for the covenant to be, uh, to, be, to, uh, to be enforced. And a unilateral, of course, uni meaning one, would be a covenant where only one person, that would be God, would be the one keeping the covenant. So that's where we're looking at, is this bilateral or unilateral? Okay, evidence of, uncondition un of being unconditional. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, okay, we look back again at Genesis chapter 12. The promises were made by God. If you look in, in the verses 1 through 3 in Genesis chapter uh, 12, you will see God say, I will, a number of times. Um, and, and in particular, in Genesis chapter 17, in verses 2 through 8, 15 through 16, 19 through 21, if you count how many times God says, I will, it, it's numerous, numerous times. I didn't count them. I will leave that as an exercise to the students. Um, but he did say it numerous times. God said, I will. I will do this. We've talked before. I mentioned it, and I'll just briefly mention it again. The covenant uh, sealing ceremony in Genesis chapter 15. Clear, clear evidence that uh, Abraham did not pass through the, the severed animals as was the custom. If two people made a bilateral covenant, they would both pass through the, the animals cut in half and essentially say 
words similar to, may I be like these animals if I don't keep my end of the bargain, basically. And, and Abraham was not allowed to pass through that. Only God passed through that. Seems to be very clear evidence that this is uh, a covenant that is a one-sided covenant. The promises were called everlasting or perpetual. Um, doesn't necessarily mean forever, but if you read in the, uh, the context, you will see that it means for a very long time um, beyond the lives of Abraham and stuff. So Genesis 17 and verse 7, for example, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And that's mentioned uh, a number of times again in verse 8, verses 13, verses 19. The promises last throughout all their generations, implying that is through all of Israel's earth history, um, and then can only rely on the Lord for, for fulfillment. So it appears to me like we have a case here similar to the discussion that we've had many times uh, about the sovereignty of God. Is God sovereign? Yes, he is. Does man have a free will? Yes, he does. And you very quickly get into, you can get into a deep discussion and I, my head starts to spin when you try to understand that with our human mind, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and how does that fit together in the salvation of man. It, to me, it looks like we have a situation like that here. We see evidence of the covenant being unconditional and resting solely on God and his promises. And then we see evidence that God has placed stipulations on the covenant and uh, is requiring and, and has even stated, I'm going to keep this covenant because Abraham obeyed, because he did these things are the reason why I'm going to bless you. Um, I, I mentioned this last time, but um, a man named G.H. Lang said the following uh, interesting point. It is a radical error in thought that grace cannot impose conditions and remain grace. John Bampton bequeathed money to, to found at Oxford the lectures that bear his name. This was grace, for he was under no obligation to do so. Nor was his grace impaired by his wisdom being displayed in attaching the conditions that the lecturers must have taken at least the degree of Master of Arts so as to secure a certain standard of learning, with the further condition that the lecturer should not be paid until he had printed the lectures, so securing permanency to the instruction given. Cases have also been known where one has bequeathed property to uh, a legatee, someone who is inheriting, um, with no natural or other claim to it. If someone had no natural descendants and they gave their inheritance to someone who was not related to them, and yet put conditions that were attached that said that the legatee had to reside on the estate and take the name of the person leaving them. The, such conditions for the enjoyment of the benefit do not lessen the fact that the bequest was an act of grace. So I wanted to mention that first here. The fact that there are stipulations on the covenant does not mean that this is not a covenant of grace. Okay, there are certainly, as we get to this point, there are obviously there are different views uh, on this. And I'm not going to go into detail on, on all of the views, um, but I will like to mention how some people view. There's at least five different views that people have about this whole question about whether the, this, this covenant is conditional or unconditional. Uh, some will say that the Abrahamic promises were originally unconditional, but were understood as conditional in later Israelite history. 
that just seems silly to me. That just seems foolish, and it doesn't really answer any of the questions that we're asking. So I mean, but I'm saying this is how some people are trying to arrive at the answer to the question because they're trying to grapple with the scriptures, and they say, well, it started out unconditional, but then they sort of understood it as conditional later. What does that mean? I don't know. That seems kind of like a silly, a silly view to me. I'm not going to spend any more time on it. Some also say that the Lord made two covenants with Abraham. One was unconditional in Genesis 15, and one was conditional in Genesis 17. And that, that seems about as silly as the first one because it still doesn't address the question. And so I'm just throwing those out there saying that, again, as people are wrestling with the issue, there are two, uh, two views that people have. Okay, then we get into some that there, there are a few more people that will assert some of these other things. Some will assert that the covenants are bilateral, meaning they are conditional in the sense that human obedience is necessary for the fulfillment of the covenant overall. And I, I, would, I would just say that it, it, we went through and looked at the evidences of the covenant being unconditional, and that, uh, we, that just that can't be true because there are, there's so much evidence here where the Bible speaks about the, the unconditionality, unconditioned, well, you know what I mean, the covenant being unconditional, that part. Uh, there's, there's so much evidence to that. To, to simply ignore that and say, well, the covenant is completely bilateral, that it has to be, it has to be uh, God doing his part and man doing his part, otherwise the covenant is completely gone. And um, there are people, and I, I believe they are called covenant theologians, who, who believe this line of reasoning, that it, the Israel broke the covenant with God, and so therefore that covenant is no longer in place, and Israel is out of the picture. And, um, and, and that's where it leads. If you, I mean, if you believe that, you have to arrive at that conclusion, that Israel is no longer in the promise. So the promises that God made to Israel through that are no longer through Israel. And then that leads to, and I don't have time to go through them all and haven't really personally yet myself gone through all the scriptures, but you get to a lot of scriptures then where you have to start saying, well, that can't mean what it says because I've already concluded that Israel's no, the promise to Israel has been negated because they disobeyed God. So then you get to a lot of scriptures where you, where you can't explain, and then the only way to really explain them is to say, well, that must just be symbolic. And uh, that, I'm just going to have to uh, allegorize that part, and we'll say it's just kind of a symbolic thing. And, and, and that leads to quite a few scriptures where you have to do that. So I don't believe the, the, those who assert that the covenants are strictly bilateral covenants, um, I don't believe that's true at all. And then there are others that on the opposite extreme who claim that no human obedience is required at all, the, the covenant is completely unconditional. It's all God, period, and no obedience is required on the part of man. And it seems, again, that that um, is getting a little closer to the truth in the sense of God being God and him being the one who established the covenant and it being through him that the promises are going to be kept. But it also doesn't address some of these clear scriptures where God has placed stipulations on and said, you shall walk before me, you shall keep my covenant, and my covenant is this, the males shall be circumcised, and if they're not, they shall be cut off, for you've broken my covenant. And um, so there's, uh, it, it doesn't address those issues. And so we come to the end where I say, uh, I, I believe more correctly the way to interpret this is that the promises that the Lord has bound himself to fulfill in the Abrahamic covenant are unconditional. 
But the timing and the participants in that fulfillment are conditioned by human obedience as a result of faith. Um, Walter Kaiser, a man, made this statement. He said, in our judgment, the conditionality was not attached to the promise, but only to the participants who would benefit from these abiding promises. The duty of obedience, law, if you wish, was intimately tied up with the promise as a desired result or a desired sequel. That's Walter Kaiser. And just, I think, some straightforward evidence that lends a lot of credence to this is uh, the generation of Israelites who were brought out of Egypt and God was going to bring them into the promised land, a whole generation of those people passed away without being able to go into the promised land. God had promised them the land. They were disobedient. And because they were disobedient, God did not allow them to go into the land. Did that negate the covenant of the land? No. God brought the next generation into the land. And so the timing of and who exactly partook in the blessing of the covenant was, was different perhaps than what it initially looked. It initially looked like God was going to bring the people out of Egypt, bring them to the promised land, and then bring them into the promised land. But that didn't, that didn't happen that way. That's one example. Genesis 17, 14 that I've read before says, an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That person shall be cut off. Uh, however many people choose not to get uh, circumcised because they're rebelling against God and being disobedient does not negate the covenant. The covenant goes on. Those people are cut off because they have chosen to rebel. So again, it does not say that the covenant is voided, but that the disobedient ones are cut off. And so, again, I, it, I think that's, that's the, only, the only way that you can interpret these scriptures, because, uh, as I said, there are evidence of conditions placed on Abraham and his followers, but there's, there's much evidence of the promises being unconditional. And the way to tie those together is to say, those promises are unconditional, but, they're, uh, but the timing of the covenant and who partakes of the covenant is dependent upon uh, people being obedient. Uh, it, and we'll, we'll talk about it as we get further on and talk about the new covenant, but uh, the new covenant is not, is not a covenant of grace that is just given to everyone and everyone is saved. There is a response that you and I have to make. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And uh, so there is uh, an action that we have to take in terms of having faith and believing in God, and otherwise you don't partake of the covenant. It doesn't negate the covenant. There's still a covenant there of salvation, but it, uh, it's, it's not, you don't partake of it. Okay. Uh, the captain of the ship looked out into the dark night and he saw faint lights in the distance. And immediately he told his signalman to send a message, alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly a return message was received, alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was angered and his command had been ignored, so he sent a second message, alter your course 10 degrees south, I'm the captain. Soon another message was received, alter your course 10 degrees north, I am seaman third class Jones. 
Immediately, the captain sent a third message, knowing that the fear that it would evoke. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. And then the reply came. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> In the midst of our dark and foggy times, all sorts of voices are shouting orders into the night, telling us what to do, how to adjust our lives. Out of the darkness, one voice signals something quite opposite to the rest, something almost absurd, but the voice happens to be the light of the world, and we ignore it at our peril. So the point is we are trying to look at the Word and understand the Word and know that the Word is the lighthouse. The Word is not moving. We are the ones that are moving, and so we need to adjust our course to what the, what the, uh, the lighthouse says, if I mean so. Um, Okay, so let's uh, stop there today for that and um, talking about the, the covenant with Abraham. We have looked through the, the spots in the scripture where God spoke directly to Abraham and have arrived at what I believe to be a, an explanation of the covenant of Abraham, the unconditionality and the conditionality of the covenant uh, with Abraham. And then what we will do as we continue on in the future as I said, is we're going to look at what does the rest of the Old Testament speak about the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant and then look into the New Testament and see for the, the fulfillment of the, the Abrahamic covenant. And, and again, pointing out that the Abrahamic covenant is an extremely important covenant that we need to understand. Um, if you're a believer today, you are living under that covenant, and so it's a, it's a good covenant to know and to understand. So let's, let me just uh, urge you during the, the course of the week, these are uh, things that are in the scripture that are just worth meditating on. I know God will, at various times, uh, in spite of our busyness, will just bring things to mind. And so meditate on, on the truth of God's word and the under, and understanding of, of God's word. Let's pray.